Welcome to The 85%, I'm Meera Sharma. Social change in the emerging world tends to be a story of new and exciting ideas, bold visions, innovation. But sometimes there's a disconnect between how a project is shown to the outside world through press, fundraising, accolades, and how it actually functions on the ground. Like in the case of the Makoko Floating School in Lagos, Nigeria. Makoko is a massive slum built along the Lagos Lagoon. Many of its houses are on stilts and canoe taxis are common. When a school there needed an extension, Nigerian architect Kunle Adeyemi got involved and designed a radical new structure that would float on the water and be responsive to the fluid environment. The design was internationally lauded and made Adeyemi a star. But the school itself was a disaster. In a recent piece for the Atavist magazine, journalist Alin Gestel investigates the dramatic rise and fall of the Makoko floating school. As she writes, it's a story about the myths that people want to believe about the world, noble intentions sullied by ego or derailed by the mundane, the intractability of parochial politics, and the ethics of social experimentation. Alin joins us from Lagos. Welcome to the 85%. Thank you. Thanks so much for having me. So describe what architect Kunle Adeyemi's initial vision for the school was. When he came to the idea of the floating school, um, his idea was to build using local materials and working with local carpenters to build um, what was basically a a floating A-frame. So it's a triangle. The base is built of uh, these uh, plastic barrels that are very prevalent in Lagos. and they're, they're used to store all kinds of things as they're shipped, like toothpaste and everything. So there's, there's a whole bunch of them um, around. So he was using those and then building up. There's like an open platform on the bottom. And then um, upstairs was where the classroom would be. And it was, yeah, a triangular shape. And then there was a, um, like a bright blue roof. He sort of described this with quite grand uh, ambitions as kind of a new form of coastal architecture, a way of sort of building a structure in the era of climate change, that kind of thing, right? Yeah, so from the beginning, once there was um, the actual um, uh, design for the building, he immediately had, like, kind of in the same publications that had the first design, um, he he kind of envisioned a whole neighborhood made with this same construction, and he saw that it could be used for different purposes. Um, And, yeah, he envisioned that it could be used, you know, like widely in Makoko and then also in other coastal communities. And um, yeah, so he definitely was hoping to kind of come up with a new um, building typology for um, coastal water cities, um, widespread visions for for how it could grow. Mm. And the project seems imbued with good intentions and and it's sort of picture perfect, media friendly, uh, very sort of contemporarily relevant. But what were some of the kind of early warning signs that things might not go as, as planned? I think maybe one of the earliest issues was kind of the, the diverging goals of the head of the school, Noah, and, um, and the architect, Kunadiemi. Um, Noah wanted an extension to his school. That was all that he wanted. Um, and so Kunle, with all of his great, beautiful ideas for revolutionizing um, architecture um, was was kind of just like adding all of these other priorities to something. I think that was maybe one of the first kind of seeds of discord. 
Um, and then also there were um, problems, you know, within the community. Issy Atomi, who had first invited Kunlaadem into the project, um, she really disagreed with his design ideas, um, and um, they they were not able to resolve their design differences. And she she backed out of the project, and she and with and took kind of the initial funders who had agreed to fund it. So um, then Kunlaadem um, took the um, the project and got other funding, and then he started to, um, he, he kind of proceeded on his own with his own vision. But then there were problems actually with the design kind of from the beginning. Um, there there wasn't a toilet in the first version that was built, and um, there were some issues with the mooring and the anchoring system. Um, and there also, what, what was kind of surprising to Noah was which is maybe not Adeyemi's responsibility as an architect, but he was kind of frustrated that when the building was done, there was no infrastructure for a classroom, so there weren't desks or anything like that. Um, and then they also were not able to get a building permit for the space from the government, um, partially because Makoko is so contested. Um, it's it's complex because um, the waterways are directed by the federal government and the land is directed by the state government and like the whole community is kind of contested um, like legality anyway so to get approval to build something there would be really problematic so those were all the issues um, but um, what, what it meant was that nobody used the school for years after it was built um, but that was somehow not really in the narrative about the school that was going on all over the world. You know, this this you know design, this new design, this new idea, this new typology, all of this stuff was based around the idea of the Makoko floating school, which is to begin with a school in Makoko for you know students in Makoko, and um, it it wasn't functioning as that for um, for years. Right, the school sort of opened and, and it was celebrated and beautifully photographed and projected to the world as a great success but um, photographers would go and find uh, students sort of like sitting around and, and no desks and sort of no school taking place right and then I think you described also um, some journalists going and, and kind of staging classroom activity for the sake of their you know media project but uh, actually really nothing was going on. Yes. <laughs> so that, that, well, that particular one, and this is actually something that I think is kind of interesting, that particular one was not a journalistic project, um, the one with the photographer who said that he staged it. It was something that was commissioned by an NGO who asked for stories about climate change in Nigeria, and this photographer then went and did this kind of piece about the school. And he didn't say these students are you know, going to school here, but it also, it, it was kind of, but it was kind of implied because you see students running up, you know, the school building and, in you know, and he said he was just trying to kind of evoke this idea of a school, even though it wasn't currently being a school. But what I think is actually really interesting about that is that it wasn't, so it was, to begin with, it's not totally clear if that's like a journalistic piece of reporting that is like a story that is being made. It was commissioned by an NGO, but then it was played on the Guardian site. So this kind of nebulously credible, like not really journalistic piece was then put into a news 
um, media outlet. And I think that that's something that's going on a lot, like this kind of lack of questioning of aid projects. I mean, the photos that were taken of the school were also, like, news outlets would be running images that came from the architect. So it's interesting how there's just kind of this kind of bleeding of narratives and not a lot of questioning of, like, what's really going on and, and kind of normal, basic, like, uh, journalistic fact-checking. Um, and I think that that's a, a really important part of this story, too, is is there's that problem. And then there's also the problem of journalists who kind of heard of the school and heard of it as this, you know, amazing, innovative thing and would go into the community looking exactly for that. And they would go briefly, they would go um, kind of, um, you know, with the architect and, and his staff and go directly to the school and, you know, meet the meet the head of the school and meet some students and talk to people that were arranged by the architect and, you know, that, that sort of thing. And I think that that is also something that happens all the time in, in reporting on development. Um, the, I mean, the number of invitations I've had as a journalist to go, you know, for an NGO will say, hey, do you want us to fly you to this place and report on our projects? And I'm always like, I don't think I can do that. The lack of questioning of, of development projects and NGO workers is something that's like a broader issue that's going on um, kind of across the media that I think is a really important part of this story and it's something that I really wanted to to interrogate a bit. Yeah, I mean, that idea of sort of going in search of the story that you want to find is kind of at the heart of this this piece. And, and it, a lot of it seems to have to do with this um, maybe hunger for a positive story, for a story of innovation. Um, you talk about how this school was a refreshing counter narrative to poverty born, terrorism, and you know, stories of failure. And, and so when there's this kind of desire to believe that this innovation is as grand and beautiful as it's been purported to be, uh, maybe that distorts how the outside world sees these kinds of interventions and clouds our ability to sort of think clearly about them. Yeah, the, and this is something that I think, like, this piece is really about for me, and it's something that I've thought a lot about. Um, I mean, just on a, on a kind of basic level, I, I think that there's this just frustratingly simple dichotomy in how people talk about the world. It's like, it's either a sob story or a hero, you know, redemptive narrative. And that's not my experience of life or the world. I find, you know, most situations are complicated. <laughs> Maybe it's just my own kind of dismal worldview to be like, there's no heroes, guys. You know, we have to have a deeper look at, at, at what... Um, social change really is and and just yeah just the idea that like dichotomy is not nuance like people people will come into these spaces being like I don't want to tell that story so it's like okay so you're going to tell the inverse story but maybe like a truly nuanced storytelling is is something that is you know I mean from the ground up um is something that that is more complicated generally and um you know messier than than people usually kind of have time for in a in a journalistic piece and i and i think also this you know redemptive hero story is it's like a defense mechanism against um against you know how problematic 
global inequality is. I mean, the number of editors who've said to me, like, well, that's, you know, that's such a depressing story. Can we, I don't want to leave my readers depressed, <laughs> you know? Right. Um, and, and it's like, I, I don't think it has to be so black and white. I, I really think we need to engage with places as they actually are. And I think that's another kind of central point of the piece, too, is that in a lot of these stories, Makoko wasn't allowed to be, like, Makoko as as specific and complicated as it is, just like every place is very specific and deep and complicated and has a history and has a way of seeing the world and, and has a perspective as a vantage point on the world. And all of that is kind of just like glossed over to turn it into, it's just becomes kind of a symbol, I think, that that is manipulated in these stories. And, and I think that that is kind of a, a subtle violence of its own to, to hmm. rip places of their depth and specificity and kind of just turn them into simple tropes. So ultimately, um, the school is not really being used as a school. Uh, it's sort of caught between lack of funding, the structure is unstable, um, lack of clarity about who is sort of responsible for managing it. Um, and then it actually collapses. Yeah, I mean, it was a, it was a really rainy, um, windy day, and um, what I was told um, by uh, Noah was who, who saw it. I wasn't there for the actual collapse, but um, he was standing outside the original school building, and in the distance, he saw the school building shaking and in the wind, and then there was like this crash, and it just collapsed, and he was shocked. Of course, everybody was totally shocked, and um, after the rain went down, went over to look at it, and. Um, and so I went later that day, um, and yeah, it was, I mean, it was just so sad to see this just, just pile of planks, you know, with like the roof kind of collapsed on top of it, just quietly floating there in the, in the lagoon after the rain had passed. And nobody was inside at the time, so nobody was, was injured. Um, everybody was extremely grateful for that. Um, but, but terrified. People were terrified yeah that feels like it so clearly elucidates what you write which is that the gap between the gloss presented to the world and the reality on the ground was was vast and I wanted to ask you whether you know you see these kinds of projects sort of social entrepreneurship as a kind of spectacle more than substance um in your reporting a lot are there are there other examples you can think of yes (laughs) um I've seen this all over the world. Um, I've worked in, I used to work in um, Haiti, and that is a place that has a a lot of NGO interventions. Um, And so I think that maybe was educational, partially educational for um, the kind of critical gaze that I have on these kinds of projects because there's, I mean, there were just so many um, examples of just empty school buildings and just half-finished projects, projects where, um, yeah, the the people who are participating, um, who are doing the construction are are more excited about it than anybody in the community. Um, I, yeah, I used to work in Mali and, you know, the, the number of kind of abandoned wells that I had seen, um, you know, dysfunctional 
water sources um, in India. I've come across organizations that had, you know, published like widely celebrated kind of reports about just innovative, you know, gender programming and, you know, how they've just totally changed uh, the, the dynamics in this village and um, learned from, uh, you know, my motorcycle driver who was waiting outside while we were doing the interview with the NGO workers inside that everybody was lying about everything that they were saying to us and, um, and you know, and then have gone on to see that, you know, project being just celebrated at international conferences. So this is something I've been looking at and aware of for years. Um, so it's definitely not a, it's not just a Nigerian story at all. It feels like you could have, you know, a whole media outlet devoted to telling the stories of these, like, NGO intervention ghosts. But why do you think the follow-up story doesn't happen as often as it should? It's a good question. I I mean, I guess it takes a long time, and um, maybe there's, you know, there's just too many projects going on, and, and people... I mean, people love, like, people love news, people love new, people love, you know, the good news. Um, So I think maybe that's part of it. I guess I'm just surprised that people still believe the hype, um, generally. Maybe I'm just a skeptical person now, having kind of, based on on what I've seen. I think it also um, often has to do with... um, an inability to kind of accept failure, perhaps. And, and that applies to the Makoko floating school as well. Um, as you describe how it, the collapse was sort of recast in the aftermath. The project was said to have been a catalyst for how to think about architecture in the face of climate change and, um, you know, recast as a kind of experiment. It was meant to be an experiment all along, everyone. Um, is that an acceptable rewriting of the narrative or is that totally um, fraudulent? Well, I, I don't think it's really fair to the people in Makoko to um, say that the project was an experiment all along. Um, though it was, I guess, always kind of called a pilot project, um, but never with the idea that it would, you know, collapse in just a couple of years. Um, I mean, the the community asked for an extension to their school, not to be, you know, a a site of, of, um, yeah, to to test out new climate change models. That's not what they Mm -hmm. asked for, um, which is, I think, what is is quite problematic. Um, Yeah, I think it's really unfortunate, actually, the ways that taking a close look at how things... um, fall apart or fell apart or how things um aren't aren't working and like looking at the 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 specifics of that um there's not really a lot of space for that because it's it's seen as as like it's a it's an attack or it's um you know people become very defensive about about you know failure I didn't write my piece as a takedown of this person or his project. I, I wrote it as a way to like try to elucidate some of the issues that come up and, and that came up in this case, you know, so that people can really think about these really, really complicated questions 
um, moving forward. And I think that that's the most important thing is we should all be striving, you know, for excellence, like with humility and with and and kind of the creation of a star um, uh, savior who then is, you know, and then that is dashed. You know, that that is such a problematic kind of framing to think about something as complicated as as you know addressing climate change and education and you know poverty and these different things the i think that's that's partially also why the hero narrative is so problematic because then it becomes a kind of gotcha kind of thing which is not i am not interested in that and i, I think um yeah i think that that's really not what it's about i think that it's it's it should be about like a deep probing of you know what went wrong, what is possible, what is not possible, like, what is the best way to kind of, you know, deal with these, you know, realities that are um, themselves so problematic. Right, right. I mean, I I don't think what you're saying is that there's no place for experimentation. (laughs) I'm not saying that (laughs) at all. I'm just saying that um, I, I think that there needs to be a, like, constant ethical questioning when acting in the world. I think we need to be self-aware of the impact that we're having on people, particularly the accidental ways that we're harming people and really, you know, try to be thoughtful and, and you know, learn from history um, and extra thoughtful when dealing with communities and people who have less power. And um, there's a long history of terrible social experimentation, extremely violent, you know, experimentation on the poor. So there's plenty of kind of models to look back at and and, and try to be aware as, um, as we, you know, move forward in the world. Mm-hmm. It also seems that with, with the Makoko floating school, there was a, a confusion around responsibility, which, which perhaps pertains to these kinds of development innovations in general um you know was it the architect's responsibility to provide all the funding for the maintenance of the school was it the communities was it the government and and when you as an innovator do sort of community-centered work do you absolve yourself of responsibility when it fails because you've framed the project as a kind of joint effort in this case it seems like that was sort of the tack that uh the architect took was, you know, this was a community project all along. So, you know, I did my part and, and that ends there. Yeah. One, I mean, one thing I, I kind of didn't put on the piece, but wish that I had was, I, I do think that, um, if there had been like a meaningful apology, um, instead of this kind of defensiveness, I think that would have gone a long way. I think like reflecting, deeply on you know how things went wrong and you know the everyone's responsibility and the ways that you know the ways that it fell apart and then taking responsibility for the you know the things that the architect might have done wrong um and apologizing you know for for scaring people like that um i i think that maybe would have allowed for more innovation um, would have allowed for you know this to heal and move forward. Yeah, what were some of the reactions to your story from uh, from Nigerians? Um, the responses were really positive. A lot of people were like, "Wow, I had no idea." Because again, Makoko is a community of 
100,000 people um, in Lagos, and if you're not from that community, you don't know it profoundly, so most people didn't know. Um, the whole story, they just seen it from a distance and read the press pieces. Um, so people were, were curious. People who had known, um, uh, people who had kind of had any interaction with the project were like, oh, finally, this is out. Like, um, The one kind of critique I got from a couple people was that I was, I was too hard on him, and, and he tried, and it's really, really hard to get things done in Nigeria, get this kind of project done. Um, so that was that was the one kind of critique I, I got I heard from just a couple of people, um, but otherwise people were were pretty glad to have deep reporting. I think. Mm. Is there anything left of the school? Is the collapse structure still floating there? No, no, no. They took it down um, within days uh, of, of it collapsing. And what about the school itself? Is is there uh, an extension for the students? The last I heard, and I haven't checked on the status of it in a couple months but the last I heard there was um, a stagnation in that project as well uh, which is kind of the extra unhappy ending to my already unhappy story <laughs> is that um, the so the architect who had originally had the idea Isiotomi had in the aftermath of the collapse she started doing some fundraising to go back and build the extension the way that she had wanted to in a simple kind of way, just the similar kind of architectural construction to um, to what is the architectural landscape of Makoko, and um, and raise some money for that. And then um, and then there was a conflict between her and um, Noah about how to move forward with that. Um, she really wanted to do something more kind of holistic. She wanted to not just... Um, fix the, the actual physical architecture, but also, you know, maybe improve the pedagogy. And she wanted to, I think, put in a, a trust to kind of oversee the school and oversee the finances of the school, especially or at least the donations that she had gotten. Um, and um, Noah did not agree to that. He felt like he did not want to give control of, of his school. And, um, and that was kind of how he framed it to me, was he was like, this is my school. Like, you know, this is, I've always been running it, why would I give control of my school away to this person? So I think that was another kind of just interesting clash that, that was going on, um, where it's not like you get to the end of the story and it's like, oh, smaller is better and everything will be fine if we just, you know, stay humble and don't, you know, shout about our projects. It's like, no, even so, there's, there's still these kind of intense tensions around trying to, to implement social change and um, it's it's complex you know um, I, I can see both of their perspectives um, I have no answers <laughs> well thank you so much for taking the time yeah thank you so much Alin Gestel is a writer and journalist based in Lagos Nigeria her piece for the Atavist magazine is called things fall apart and that's it for this week's show. The 85% is a production of Emerge 85. Visit our website, emerge85.io, for more interviews, profiles, and features on the many changes unfolding in the emerging world. We're also on social media at E85Lab. Thanks for listening. See you next time.